a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Each episode, we talk about a political situation that is developing somewhere in the world. And, of course, there is no one more qualified to shed light on international affairs than Dr Keith Souter. Thanks very much indeed, Kate. So I've been involved with talking about world affairs now for almost half a century. We're involved with the United Nations Association and various other research institutes. So enjoy very much talking about foreign affairs. And my name's Kate. I'm Dr Keith's producer. This week we're talking about South Africa, whose parliament has just voted to confiscate white-owned land without compensation, which is a pretty scary proposition. Looks like they could be going the same direction as Zimbabwe. Um... Keith, what's going on here? Well, it's a very tragic story, I think, in South Africa, though to a certain extent it is understandable. So that the country uh, shared the apartheid era in the early 1990s. The assumption then is that the people were going to, um, the black people were suddenly going to share in the wealth of South Africa. South Africa is potentially very rich indeed. And so people were led to believe that uh, if they were patient and if they played the game, then the wealth would somehow flow to them. And I think we're seeing now a new generation of activists coming forward, particularly what are called the economic freedom fighters, who are a Marxist group, who are saying, look, um, 20 years of our patience or 25 years of our patience really hasn't paid off. Therefore, we now need to start looking at taking over the land from white people and, if necessary, not paying them compensation, uh, avoiding killing them but certainly taking their land. And so that is the situation that we're now in. And, of course, it's sending shockwaves with a lot of people saying that this will then lead to South Africa ending up a bit like Zimbabwe. So let's go back to the Zimbabwe situation because this is exactly what happened there, although there were also a lot of killings involved. And this is... 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. So Zimbabwe um, um, eventually uh, became an independent country in the early 1980s um, with uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and also Malcolm Fraser. It's worth emphasising his role in all of this. Malcolm Fraser was instrumental in convincing conservative white people in Great Britain and uh, Australia that it's actually in their interests to support the black nationalists rather than the white racists because as you supported the white racists, so it gave opportunity for the old Soviet Union to then side with the black nationalists and give them an entree into African politics. So Malcolm Fraser, being quite devious but very sensible in my view, said, look, guys, we've just got to change. We've got to stop supporting the white racists and we've therefore got to move over to supporting the black uh, nationalist, which he then did in terms of Robert Mugabe, um, who was a very talented person. You know, we, we see him at the end as a very corrupt individual, but he's he was a talented person. And he was loved by the people at loved, the time. Absolutely. And so he was this black nationalist leader, took over. Zimbabwe was called the food basket of Southern Africa because of its lovely soil, potential to grow a lot of food. Um, but then, unfortunately, the power went to Mugabe's head. He was surrounded by people who said, look, let's steal the land off the whites so a lot of the land then was stolen from the whites arguably of course they'd stole it from previous generations of africans which is where the situation gets very complicated um, but the land then has been handed over to particularly to the cronies of the late robert mugabe who didn't know how to farm and so we, we had good farming land that has actually gone to waste because it's being owned by people who don't have a good farming background um, and so zimbabwe is now this basket case with hyperinflation etc um, 
And now the worry is that South Africa might be going down that same path. There's a long way to go before they reach the Zimbabwe situation. But it is worrying that if you look at South Africa overall, since um, the removal of the minority white racist regime and the coming to power of Nelson Mandela as the first black president, what we have seen has been a, a problem for South Africa in terms of trying to work out a good economic strategy for its redevelopment. And indeed, for the last 10 years, bearing in mind that um, Mandela retired almost 20 years ago, but in the last 10 years, for the last 20 years, um, the country's actually gone backwards. So we've now got a third of the workforce unemployed, insofar as you can measure it. A huge public service, um, so the people living in the cities may be thriving. And this is part of the problem for South Africa, that you've got cities that uh, have got the wealth, but then you've got the poverty in the hinterland. So you need to have a strategy which will actually go out and help to develop that hinterland. So there are tremendous challenges for whoever now becomes the new president, which is Cyril Ramaphosa. So let's go back to the Nelson Mandela era, because Mm. that completely changed South Africa when he was swept into power uh, after being jailed. Um, And there was a lot of hope among black South Africans that he would really change the nation. What did he manage to accomplish? Well, I think it's a South African miracle. It's the only way you can describe it. When you look at other liberation struggles in Africa, they have gone violent. Um, He was able, through this act of reconciliation, um, to bring people together. I think it's inspiring. He's one of the greatest individuals I've ever met. You know, this is a person who was brutalised by that existence in prison. A colleague of mine, the Reverend Peter Storey, um, was his chaplain on Roban Island. He's someone who was treated appallingly. And yet, instead of when he got out, eventually got out of prison saying, right, now we're going to go after all those whites who treated me so badly, there was this element of reconciliation. So uh, truly, you know, magical. It's the only way you can describe it. When you look at the tragedy of the African continent and the amount of violence that goes on, um, here you had someone who was completely different from the way that other African liberation struggles have ended. And so a number of us refer to this as the South African miracle. People uh, taking part in their first major election with, to vote for Nelson Mandela were queued for hours in the blazing sun to cast their vote. You know, it was a really magical time for South Africa. Those first five years of the liberation of South Africa, well, the first five years and then the five years of, of Mandela actually being in office, really magical. And so a lot of us thought, well, perhaps South Africa is going to be the exception. It's not going to go the way of all the chaos that you see in other parts of the country. Um, and yet, tragically, that is now gone. And we're now, as you say in your opening remarks, comparing South Africa to Zimbabwe. Um, as, and as yet, perhaps as another failed state or a captured state. That's now the new phrase they're using in South Africa. You've got a handful of families who worked very closely with the uh, previous uh, president. And so uh, they have captured the state. That's the phrase. So Jacob Zuma, the previous president, has just been removed. Um, he allowed the state to be captured. High degree of corruption. There's a lot of corruption in Africa anyway, but it actually got worse under Zuma's time in power. So it's an absolute tragedy compared to where we were with where we are today. Uh, and let's just not miss the opportunity to also say that you met Nelson Mandela mm. before the opportunity passes to passes by. <laughs> um, you did a few decades ago. I did indeed. So uh, he got released in 1990 and then uh, went on a round-the-world round trip 
thanking governments who'd helped him. And, of course, he came to Australia. And um, I was at a reception in uh, Canberra and got to meet him. And I tell you, you know, you hear about the room lighting up when a person moves into the room. It was truly the case when he... Uh, he walked in. Now, he, he is, uh, was uh, a tribal chieftain in his own right, very well educated, um, and obviously all those years breaking rocks didn't do his health any harm because there he is, superbly fit uh, and, and really a charismatic figure. Um, and he gave us a short speech thanking Australians for the help that we've given over the years. Now, remember, of course, uh, uh, Australia was one of the last countries to support the white regime in the United Nations. Our great fear was that if the United Nations decided to investigate the internal affairs of South Africa, which is apartheid, if they were to do that in the 50s and 60s, then ultimately they would start to ask questions about Australian Aborigines. Again, it's hard to imagine, but Australian Aborigines had the world's highest rate of leprosy. Import appalling health statistics. Even to this day, there's a higher rate of incarceration amongst Indigenous peoples in Australia than among black people in the United States. A higher rate, obviously not a higher population, but a higher rate. Um, and otitis media, you know, you're a young mother, you've got children. Otitis media is a problem in Indigenous communities, whereas amongst the, the white families, such as your own, no problem. So, and that's the highest rate of otitis media in the world. So we, we have an appalling situation with Indigenous peoples. And Robert Menzies took the view, look, if they start talking about the um, policies of South Africa at home, they will start talking about our own policies regarding a... Aborigines. Therefore, we must continue to support white South Africa at the United Nations. And that policy only changed in 1972 when Gough Whitlam became Prime Minister. And I'm pleased to say that his successor, Malcolm Fraser, then convinced the Liberal Party that they then also needed to support the black nationalists and not go back to supporting apartheid. And so Mandela was, came out to Australia in 1990 to thank Australia for the change that was made in 1972 with Gough Whitlam and was maintained despite changes of power. That policy has maintained despite the political party in power. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking today about South Africa, whose parliament has just voted to uh, confiscate white-owned land without compensation, which seems like it's going the way, alarmingly, that Zimbabwe went many decades ago. It never recovered from it. It became just a fiscal nightmare, yep. didn't it? Um, so let's just have a look closely at South Africa because even now, Dr Keith, this is a country that is... Um, it's got a tourism boom happening from Western mm. countries. We've got so many people going there, and yet the headlines are always that it is one of the most unsafe places yeah. in the world. There's some of their cities, other yep. year after year, classify the most unsafe. Why is South Africa such a basket case? You've got this beautiful wildlife and these sanctuaries, and then you've yeah. got this madness and, and huge crime rates. So you've got a, a country with um, 56 million people. It's the 25th largest by population, largest country in the world. And it's got three potential growth areas, tourism, which you've mentioned, um, agriculture and mining. You know, we talk a lot about our own mining industry, but if you look at South African industry, particularly on gold, they're actually even more important in terms of the history of gold mining than, than Australia. So you've got these three important industries that, that are operating, um, and yet the tragedy is that the South Africans have not been able 
to make the most of those opportunities. So it's a country with a high degree of corruption, um, high degree of of crime, as you've pointed out. Um, and yet what is interesting is that amongst the general people that, that there is this desire to improve themselves, which is a very important factor. It's a thing that I continue to emphasise when I'm talking to people that in the West we are very satisfied, we are complacent, we spend our time being entertained. We are up against countries like India and China and parts of Africa where people have a thirst for learning and a determination to do well. One of the things that's really in intriguing is to go to some of these um, other African countries and see the children who sit around the airfield at night doing their homework. So the, the transmission of light to their own homes is not reliable. So they congregate at the airfield where the lights are left on and where there's a permanent supply of light, and that's where they do their homework. You go to India, you see the children writing on brown shopping bag, as because they don't have textbooks, mm. but they're writing on shopping paper uh, for their brown paper bags. So you see this incredible desire for learning, a desire to do well. And that's, I think, an important quality that you can build on. It's clearly what the Chinese have built on since the economic revolution, since the death of Chairman Mao, um, and since Deng Xiaoping came to power. Deng Xiaoping came up with a very interesting strategy because he said, look, if you look at China, you have a handful of cities that are doing well, the countryside's doing badly. The same policy could be followed in South Africa today, where you have the, the big cities um, that, as you say, the tourists like to visit and they're reasonably safe. It's when you get into the hinterland that you run into problems. Therefore, you should set up some sort of free trade zones within those areas, free of taxes and just encourage foreign investment. The Chinese will certainly move in. They will like that sort of arrangement. And China will help the economic development of Africa. So China is reshaping the global mm. economy. While mm. the Americans are bogged down shooting Muslims in the Middle East, the Chinese were not involved in any wars. They're just concentrating on, on reshaping the global agenda. And, and they would be able to do that in Africa. In fact, they're doing it already in Africa. And so increasingly, the future of Africa is Chinese or Indian. But the Gupta family, which has captured the state, has, has got Indian roots as well. So it's, for me, it's very interesting that the potential is there mm. for South Africa to do well. Whether Cyril Ramaphosa, the new leader, can mobilise that, who knows? But the potential is certainly there. So then in terms of this um, this particular legislation that we are talking about today, which is um, voting in their parliament to confiscate white-owned land without compensation, so they essentially just take it back from the white owners. Mm. Um, how badly could this go for them and where could it take them? Well, how badly it could go is that the word will go out, or what's called sovereign risk. Sovereign risk is a phrase that investments bankers use to describe when the government goes off the rails. So an investment risk is when a government, well, like we're seeing, nationalises private ownership. One of the reasons why people continue to invest in the United States, even though we've all got our comments about the United <laughs> States, people still invest there because there is no sovereign risk. The US government has no tradition of nationalising assets. Um, so if you invest there, you know your money is going to be safe. It might be eroded by inflation, but it will not be taken over by 
by government police. Um, that's one of the reasons why the Chinese park their money in Australia, because mm. they, they buy apartments here, not really as uh, flourishing investments, but simply as a way to park money overseas, because they're worried that their own government will take the money off them. Now, and the risk is, of course, that people will say in South Africa, well, they've now developed that same habit of taking wealth off private individuals, that sovereign risk. Is it suitable for us, therefore, to try to invest in South Africa when there is a risk that our property could be stolen by the government. And But what about purely just from a tension uh, inside South Africa perspective, whites versus blacks? Yeah, but the whites are outnumbered and they know that mm. and the whites are fleeing. We get a number of them, of course, in, in, in Australia. So they are coming to this country. A lot of them, are, particularly the younger people, don't really see much of a future for themselves. I think the older people who sort of grown up with the land, inherited it from their uh, parents, they may well have said, well, look, I'm, I'll be happy to die in this country, but the kids and grandkids are fleeing overseas and looking for alternative ways to live. But surely the black um, Africans in South Africa would acknowledge that the, some of the white people that have lived there for, you know, many, many, many years have contributed sure. a lot to their economy and to their lifestyle. Absolutely. But then they would also say, look, we remain poor despite almost a quarter of a century of getting rid of apartheid. Um, and so this is, uh, for me, it's a very interesting story. If you look back to the sort of the broader picture of transition, we often talk about this thing called scenario planning, which is a technique that I use, again, to think about the future. This is a great example of scenario planning. In the 1980s, um, the, there was a very big, the biggest corporation in South Africa commissioned a staff member to do a study of the future of South Africa. And he went around giving community talks. So Clem Sutner talked about the high road and the low road. The high road would be the release of Nelson Mandela, then the world's longest serving political prisoner, the creation of a multiracial electorate, and then going on to um, create a flourishing multicultural society. His white audiences were outraged. They said, Nelson Mandela is a terrorist, he will die in jail. He said, well, there's also a low road. So in this low road, we whites are outnumbered by the blacks. They work in our homes. We can be murdered in our beds at night. Tell us more about the high road. And that's what contributed to the changeover of power. In 2001, I was a guest of Annette Liu in Taiwan, and she brought together a number of Nobel Peace Prize winners. So Frederick de Klerk, Nelson Mandela, Lekwenza from Poland, etc. And somebody just asked the um, uh, uh, Frederick de Klerk, the last white president of South Africa, how were you able to release Nelson Mandela? And he paid tribute to Klim Sutner. He said that there's been this person going around giving talks on an alternative South Africa. And that gave me the political space in which I could then uh, liberate Nelson Mandela and then negotiate for a new type of South Africa. What we now need, I think, is a fresh lot of scenarios for the future of South Africa where we will look at economic growth opportunities, which will be a more inclusive society um, and where we could truly liberate the energy and the resources that we have in that country. Dr Keith... This conversation could go for about four hours. So, <laughs> thanks, Kate. <laughs> Another very interesting topic. Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Production assistance by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.